Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. Is that better? <laughs> Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Well, good morning. I still want to say Happy New Year, so I'm just going to say it anyway. Happy New Year. <laughs> we're going to be uh, in Hebrews this morning, so actually we're just going to jump right into that text. Let's ask for the Lord's help as we get into it. Gracious Father, thank you so much for, uh, for, new, uh, for newness, for newness in worship this morning, newness in uh, fellowship. Uh, it's good to be in your house today, Lord, and we thank you for the strength and the life and the breath and the desire to be here today. Uh, we would ask you to help us now as we get into this book, uh, open our eyes and our hearts to take away what you want us to take away this morning. May Jesus Christ be high and lifted up. That is our prayer this morning, and it's in his awesome name we pray. Amen. They call it the wow signal. Uh, in August 1977, a radio telescope at Ohio State University recorded a signal from outer space. The signal lasted 72 seconds, so just over a minute. And I'm just going to quote a scientific article here so I say this correctly. Here's how they described the signal. It was a strong, continuous, narrow-band radio signal. And the reason they call it the wow signal is that it made the scientists go, wow. Uh, you see, usually all they hear is static, right? When they point those great big radio telescopes at outer space, I don't know if you ever thought about it, but all they hear is static. It's just like, you know, the TV not tuned to a channel back in the day when that was a thing. Uh, it's just static. And, but on August 15th, 1977, this one telescope in one place picked up 72 seconds of a signal that actually sounded like something. It sounded like something. And ever since that day, they've been trying to figure out what? They've been trying to figure out what it is. And can I tell you, they have never succeeded. With all these great minds focused on it, uh, they've pointed dozens of others, probably hundreds of others uh, at this point of telescopes. They've pointed them at the same spot. They've studied the original signal. They've analyzed it, poured over it, listened for it again, and it's never happened. 
Never happened again. And, and they're still working on it, right? Almost, almost 50 years later, they're still working on it. I, I was reading in a, 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 basically a review of a documentary that's just been put out on PBS. And it's a, it's a documentary about the SETI program, Search for Intelligent, uh, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And it told about the wow signal. And it's this new documentary just kind of talking about this quest, this quest to find uh, something beyond ourselves, something beyond this world. And I was thinking about that. I was thinking about that, that ongoing search. I think it shows something very important about human beings. It shows that humans are longing to hear something. We're longing to hear some, some message, some word from beyond this world. And the irony, of course, is that we already have. We already have. The greatest intelligence of all has already spoken, and he's done so clearly through Jesus Christ. Uh, we're starting a new series this morning, and uh, we are going to be studying through Hebrews, the book of Hebrews together. Uh, my, my hope, uh, the Hebrews is a long enough book, we're going to end up breaking it into pieces, is usually the best way to do a longer book. Uh, my hope is to get us through chapter 6 by the end of April. That's my goal. It doesn't always work the way I plan, but, but that's my aim through the first six chapters by uh, a little bit after Easter. And I'm calling this series, uh, I'm calling this series Enduring Courage. Enduring courage, because that is what this book is about. It's, it's all about, Hebrews is all about having the courage to endure life's challenges. And you're like, is it really? Yes, it is. I, I know there's all this rich theology and interaction with the Old Covenant, but at the heart of it, this book is about having the courage to endure uh, to get through, to persevere and overcome life's challenges. And those challenges, they come in all kinds of forms. We know that well. Uh, sometimes it's persecution, and that one actually figures largely in, for the original readers of this letter. We'll see evidence of this as we go along. They were being persecuted, and they were tempted to give up to give up on their faith. And, and so sometimes the challenges that, that challenge our faith are, are persecution. But it's not always persecution. It comes in other forms, too. Sometimes it's, it's disease, uh, it's war, sometimes the challenges are economic, sometimes they're political, sometimes they're more personal, things we're going through personally in our lives. Uh, sometimes the challenges to our faith even come in the form of prosperity and good times. Uh, those can also be dangerous. Sometimes success can be even more dangerous, actually. Uh, to our souls in persecution. And so there's all kinds of challenges, but whatever form those challenges take, we need encouragement, right? That's what that word encouragement means. It means courage in, right? We need encouragement to stand uh, strong in our faith. And, and I, I do believe this is the message of Hebrews. It, the book is about encouragement. And the way the author is going to do this, the way he's going to encourage us, is he's going to focus our eyes on Jesus. And so Hebrews is very much a book about Jesus. It's about focusing our eyes on who Jesus is. I like how a Bible scholar named Raymond Brown puts it. He wrote one of the commentaries I'll, I'll be looking at as I go along here. Uh, Brown summarizes Hebrews this way. He says, No believer can cope with adversity unless Christ fills his horizons, sharpens his priorities, and dominates his experience. No believer no believer, none of us can cope with adversity unless Christ fills his horizons, sharpens his priorities, and dominates his experience. 
And so that's what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about having the courage to endure. And, and Hebrews just goes there first. It goes there with this focus on Jesus Christ. Uh, and that's what the first four verses teach us. And we're going to kind of zero in on this. This is the introductory paragraph this morning. Uh, Hebrews starts out by saying, God speaks most clearly, not through radio signals, <laughs> but through Jesus. God speaks most clearly through Jesus. He is the supreme revelation. He is the supreme revelation of God. You can point a billion telescopes at every corner of the galaxy, and you'll never hear a clearer message than the one God has spoken through Jesus. So here's our plan for how we're going to use our time this morning. I want to use the, the time we have to uh, walk you through, and here we go, four verses. I want to talk about eight ways, eight ways that Jesus is the supreme revelation of God. <clears throat> we won't spend a lot of time on any of these. It's just four verses, and it's an introductory paragraph. So we're kind of doing introductory things this morning. I think all of these themes that I'm going to show you this morning are going to come up later in the book. But we're going to follow the author's lead. We're going to go where he goes. We're going to start with this uh, elegant and beautiful emphasis on the supremacy of Jesus Christ here in verses 1 through 4. So I want, to, I want to show you eight ways Jesus is the supreme revelation of God. He is God's most clear communication of who he, God, is. So number one, first one. Number one, Jesus is the supreme revelation of God because he is God's final word. He's the last thing and the ultimate thing, the ultimate thing, I won't say last, but the ultimate thing, the biggest thing that God has to say. You see, and when we say this, when we say Jesus is the final word, it does not mean God was silent before, right? So we celebrated Christmas just recently. Uh, that we're not saying God was silent before Jesus was born. No, God had spoken many times and in many ways, the author's going to tell us. Uh, but when God sent Jesus, when Jesus came to this earth, Jesus was the final word on what God had to say, that, that clearest communication. Uh, let's look at the opening words. So he starts out, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now, before we get into those words, let's cover a couple of details. There's always a little bit of housekeeping you need to do at the start of a new series. So uh, let's just address a couple of those issues. First of all, who wrote Hebrews? Who wrote uh, the book of Hebrews? The answer is, we don't know. We don't know. The letter doesn't tell us who wrote Hebrews. That's actually one of the ways Hebrews is different from most of the other New Testament letters. Right, so most of the other letters in the New Testament, uh, they have a formal greeting, and in that formal greeting, the author identifies himself. Uh, the only exception, actually, it, where there isn't at least some sort of an identification of the author is uh, 1 John, the one we studied a year ago. Uh, 1 John also opens, uh, kind of skips the greeting, you, you could say. Uh, and, and Hebrews it also does that. There's no introduction or greeting. There, there's an introduction, but there's no greeting to tell us who wrote the letter. Uh, there are, of course, theories. There's always theories. Uh, some, people wrote, uh, some people say that Paul wrote Hebrews. In fact, if you're a fan of the King James Version and you have one with you today, it says that at the top. You're probably saying to yourself, what's he making? It says right here. This is the, Paul's letter to the Hebrews. Um, that's an interpreter's uh, slam, uh, paste onto the text. Uh, the, the letter doesn't say that it was written by Paul. Uh, there are lots of people through church history who have argued that it was Paul, but uh, there's also some good counter evidence within the letter itself that it wasn't Paul. So, so, yes, it's possible Paul wrote it, but that's certainly not def definitive. 
Uh, others argue for a guy named Barnabas. You might remember Barnabas from the book of Acts. There's some, uh, some ancient people who argued Barnabas wrote it. Uh, Apollos, you also meet Apollos in the book of Acts. There's a pretty good case that could be made that Apollos wrote the book. Uh, others say that it's intentionally anonymous, that we don't know when we weren't meant to know. That was actually the position of a guy named Origen. Uh, Origen's a pretty significant church leader from, like, say, the two, the, the, we call it the third century, the 200s. Um, he, he was one of the early ones to comment on this. He just said, only God knows. That was Origen's take in the 200s. Only God knows who wrote Hebrews, he said. So if you ask me, as we go along through this series, who wrote Hebrews, uh, I'm going to have to say, I don't know. I might slip once in a while and say Paul, uh, but uh, that's mostly just because I, there's so many Pauline epistles in here that I've preached through over the years. So I might slip and say Paul, but uh, we, we technically formally don't know. We also don't know who the book is for. Uh, believe it or not, we actually don't know. You'd think this one would be easier because it's called the letter to the Hebrews, uh, but the, again, the letter doesn't say that. That's the church's interpretation over the centuries. And, and with this one, I think it's a good one. Uh, but but the, So the interpretation has long been that the letter was written to Jewish Christians. So we Gentiles can listen in, we can you know, read it along, and we're certainly interested in these things. But there's a lot of themes and emphases here that have, have long argued for, this book, for, for the position that this book was written to Jewish Christians scattered throughout the Roman Empire. It's not one specific city or place. Scattered throughout the empire who were tempted to give up on Jesus. And this is where the persecution is going to come into to play. This is why there are several instances in the book where all of a sudden the author will start drilling down on the importance of perseverance and enduring and not... Basically, it's a book about the danger of apostasy, is, is you, could, you could say. And so the audience, even though the, the letter doesn't tell us formally it was written to Jewish Christians in danger of falling away, I, I do think that's a pretty good way to think about it. And we'll, we'll kind of assume that as we go along. Uh, and there is evidence for that, including in these first two verses. So now to, to, to look at those verses, housekeeping out of the way. Uh, there's evidence even here that it was written to Jewish Christians. Uh, and, and it's this emphasis on the Old Testament. Right? So yeah, Gentiles are certainly going to be interested in the Old Testament, but it's not in their souls the way it is in a, in a Jewish person. Right? The, the Jewish converts really cared about this issue. To them, what you and I call the Old Testament, that's God's word right? Because the New Testament is still being written in the first century. And so God's word, God has spoken through uh, Genesis through Malachi, right? That's God's word. And so the author starts there for the sake of these Jewish, Jewish, leader, these, uh, Jewish readers. He says, yes, God has spoken. In many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers. And there's another clue that we're talking, we're, we're writing primarily to a Jewish audience. It's our fathers. That's who he spoke to through the prophets uh, the author says. And so he affirms it. He's not going to, certainly not going to uh, debase the Old Testament. God spoke. He spoke through Moses. He spoke through Isaiah. He spoke through Jeremiah and, and, and so on and so on and so on. But now, verse 2, but now God has spoken more clearly. He's spoken more clearly through his son. That's the, that's the whole point of that first sentence. Yes, he spoke through the prophets before, but not anymore. No more messengers now. No more intermediaries now. No more prophets now. Now, get, we, now we get it straight from God. We get it straight from God himself. Jesus, his son, is his final word. And that makes him superior, right? Like we're right out of the gate here. The author is establishing the supremacy of Jesus. If you were going to outline it, you would say over the prophets. 
In the first two verses, Jesus is supreme over the prophets. He's greater than any of them, greater than Moses. That's a theme he'll come back to later. Greater than Moses, greater than all of them. And so Jesus is the supreme revelation of God. All right, number two, let's look at another one. The second way Jesus is, is supreme is that he is the rightful heir the rightful heir. That's where we go next. The next part of verse 2. God has spoken to us by his son, whom, talking now about the son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. So God appointed Jesus the heir of all things. Uh, The idea here is that Jesus owns everything. That's what that means. Jesus owns everything. It's all his. Talk about being supreme. It's all his. Uh, Because that's what an heir is. Uh, The heir is the owner of the inheritance. So if you inherit something, you now own that something. Maybe it's a piece of jewelry, maybe it's an old antique piece of furniture, maybe it's a piece of land. Uh, Whatever it is, when you inherit something, when you're the heir, H-E-I-R, when you're the heir, uh, you become the rightful owner, right? Somebody might contest it, but if it was done correctly and that was the intent, you're the rightful owner now of whatever that was. Uh, Well, uh, according to verse 2, that's Jesus, God has made Jesus, and we're going to learn as we go along that it's kind of a, it's post-cross, it's post uh, his, his accomplishing his work on the cross. Uh, God made Jesus, in the wake of that, the heir of everything. He's the owner of everything, which means everything belongs to him. I, I've quoted this before, but I love it. I, the, the famous words of uh, Abraham Kuyper from the 1900s, or uh, 1800s. Uh, Kuyper famously said, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ does not cry mine. It's all his. It's all his. This is very personal. Everything you have is his. Think about that. Your house, your car, your truck, your your job, your career, uh, your hobbies, your computer, your smartphone, your Instagram feed, your Facebook page, your bank account, your retirement savings, your your college scholarship, uh, even your own body. You can see why this is such a countercultural message. Even our own bodies, they belong to Jesus. I think of Acts, Acts chapter 17, where Paul says, we we live and move and have our being in him. Even the air we breathe, even the heart beating in your chest right now, it all belongs to Jesus. That's, that's That's the assertion. That's the opening assertion of this book. He and he alone is the rightful heir of all things. That's supreme. Number three, Another way Jesus is God's supreme revelation to humankind is that he is also, we're now told, he is the agent of creation. He's the agent of creation. That's the last part of verse 2. God has spoken to us by his Son, through whom also he created the world. So, not only does Jesus own everything, but it turns out he made everything. So he's got a, a very strong claim to the ownership of it all. I think that might be the logic here. Uh, Not only does he own everything, but he's made it all, too. This is a very important issue if you think about it through Jewish eyes. I mean, it's important to all of us, but if you think about it through the eyes of these Jewish, the the initial, original readers, creation is a very important thing. It's core to to, uh, their understanding of the universe, because they rightly understood that the universe had not always existed. There were, uh, you know, we we think this is a modern idea, but there were ancient Greek philosophers uh, who argued that the universe simply existed. It didn't have a beginning. It just always was. Uh, But Jews knew better than that, right? And they also, they knew it wasn't created by some gang of gods. I don't know if you've ever kind of looked at any of the ancient mythologies from that part of the world, but, you know, there's, there's these different versions where human beings and sometimes even the earth itself is created 
almost by accident, right? The gods are fighting with each other and one of them, you know, spits or, or bleeds and, and all of a sudden, boom, there's, there's the world. It's almost like created by accident. Jews knew better. Their cosmology was much stronger. They knew that God created everything. There was a time when there was nothing and then it all came into being because God spoke. Right? They understood that. Yahweh himself was the creator. Now look what the author of Hebrews does. The author uh, says, that was Jesus. Jesus was involved. He's the one through whom God created everything. And you start to, to wade out into the, 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 the deeper waters of the doctrine of the Trinity here. So God is, is, is active and the Spirit was hovering over the waters. Uh, you read in Genesis 1, uh, and, and now we see it's Jesus. Jesus is the one through whom God is doing this stuff. So, so Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all involved in the act of creation. So, so we're only in verse 2. We haven't even finished a, a sentence yet, <laughs> but we're already seeing uh, the immense power of Jesus, right? We talk about supremacy uh, and, and encouragement and, and, the, and the need to press on. Uh, think about it this way. If there's any temptation to walk away from Jesus, which we'll see that issue begin to surface even in chapter two already, if there's any temptation for someone to walk away from Jesus, uh, the author is telling us, well, you need to understand who you're walking away from, you're walking away from the most powerful being in the universe. You're, you're walking away from uh, the agent of creation, the one who made everything. So don't walk away from him is, is going to be the message. Stick with him. Press on. Number four, uh, Jesus is also, here's another one, he is the radiance of God's glory. He's the radiance of God's glory. That's what it says at the beginning of verse three. So talking about Jesus, it's all, it's all focused on him now. It says, he is the radiance of the glory of God. Now, what does that mean? What, 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 are those, what do those words mean? What does it mean to say Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God? Well, what it means is that Jesus is the glory of God personified. And I was, we actually sang it. It was one of the, the lyrics. I wasn't too familiar with that song, but we actually, it, was, it was embedded in the lyrics of, I think it was the third song we sang. Might have been the second one. Andrew will know better. But, but where it talked about that, his glory, he's the glory in flesh. He's the glory of, the radiance of, it means that he is the glory of God in person. So think about the glory of God just conceptually. Uh, there's a, a lot of passages in the Old Testament where the glory of the Lord shows up. Right? And a lot of times it's in these miraculous appearances. Sometimes there's a technical name for it, theophany, uh, the appearances of God. Uh, and, and you'll get the, this glorious appearance of God. One of the more familiar ones for most of us comes in Exodus. So it's found in Exodus chapter 24. And there's this passage, the Israelites have, you know, they've crossed through the Red Sea and they've made it through the first stage of their desert tra travails and they get to the Mount Sinai and God comes down upon the mountain he comes down on the mountaintop, and you read this in Exodus 24, it's verse 17, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain, right? And it wasn't coming out of the mountain like a volcano, it was coming down from heaven onto the top of the mountain, right? It's like a devouring fire, that's Exodus 34. There's other passages, uh, they talk about a fiery cloud, uh, thunder, lightning, an earthquake when the glory of the Lord is, is manifest. It's, it's like the earth shakes. The point of those different appearances is that when God's glory shows up, it is awe-inspiring. It's awe-inspiring. Uh, in fact, sometimes it's even terrifying, right? Sometimes there are, people are just overwhelmed 
by. In fact, a lot of time, people are simply overwhelmed when the glory of God appears. That's how bright, shining, you know, those kinds of words, um, powerful, immense the glory of God is. I think of um, Isaiah's vision in the temple, Isaiah chapter 6, when he, he looks and the glory of the Lord was high and lifted up in the temple. He's allowed to see. God opens his eyes so he can see the glory of the Lord there in the temple. Do you remember what he says? <laughs> woe is me, I am a man undone, right? He's, he's, he's convicted of his sin, his people's sin. Uh, that's what happens when we see the glory of God. According to verse 3 here in Hebrews, that's Jesus. All of that is, is uh, poured down, as it were, into the person of Jesus. He's the radiance of God's glory. It shines through him now. That's one of the reasons the transfiguration is so significant. If you think of that passage in the Gospels, it's actually repeated in each of the Gospels because it's so important. Uh, God allows for a brief moment just three of the apostles to see who Jesus really is. Because when you read that picture, those accounts of the transfiguration, it's not that it's like a spotlight in heaven that shines on Jesus. It's that who Jesus really is shines through. Right? Because he is, it's exactly what the author of Hebrews is saying here. He's the radiance of God's glory. And they're allowed just a little peek of, of who Jesus is. Usually for their own good, that's kept masked from them until after the resurrection. But that's who he is. He's the radiance of the glory of God. That goes right into the next one. The fifth way he's the supreme re uh, revelation is that he is the embodiment of God's nature. And these two go together. Four and five, they, they actually go together. In fact, it's the same sentence. They even share a verb. And you see that in the English Standard Version. Uh, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The, 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 of the eight things we're looking at today, these, these two actually share the same verb. So he's the radiance of God's glory and the embodiment, the embodiment of God's nature. God's nature put in body, right? It's very uh, incarnation important verse for understanding the incarnation. Uh, he's the exact imprint. He's the exact imprint of his nature. So that's an interesting word, this word exact imprint. Uh, it actually translates a, a Greek word, a, a shorter Greek word, that's used for the image on a coin. So most of us don't carry coins around anymore, but if you had a coin, if you took out a coin, um, there would be a picture on that coin. You know, it's usually for, in the United States, it's the head of, a, of an important leader from the past in, in, uh, in our country. Uh, in the Roman world, where this author is writing, in the Roman world, the image was almost always the emperor. There were exceptions, but usually printed on the coins was a picture of the emperor. And that picture, that image of the emperor on the coin was made from, it's a lot like how we still do it today, it was made from a stamp or a die, right? They'll talk about minting coins using an original stamp, a die, and they'll stamp each of the coins from that original. And so if I'm holding, a, let's say, a quarter, and I'm looking at that quarter, and I wonder to myself, I wonder what the, the original looks like. I wonder what the stamp that made it in the Denver Mint or wherever, I wonder what that, that original looks like. I don't have to wonder. It's right here. The, the original looks exactly like the stamp, especially if it's a new coin. It hasn't been worn away. Right? It's the exact imprint. It's the exact imprint. Hebrews uses that picture and says that's what Jesus is. So if I want to know what the original of this coin looks like, I just need to look at the coin. If I want to know what God looks like, I just need to look at Jesus. That's the claim that's being made here. If you want to know what God looks like, all you need to do is look at Jesus. So that applies to the glory, right? Back to number four, the radiance of, his God's, of God's glory. If you want to know what God's glory is like, 
All those other pictures were helpful, right? The, the, the storms and the thunder and the earthquake and the still, small, still voice and all of those different many pictures, but it all culminates in Jesus. He's the radiance of God's glory, right? You want to see it? Just look at Jesus. And then it applies to the rest of God's character too. That's this fifth point. So if you want to know what God's character is like, you say, what's God like? Right? Point my telescope at the heavens. What's out there? What's, out, what's it like? You don't have to point your telescope at the heavens. You just have to look at Jesus. He'll show you what, what God is like. That's where you'll see God's love. That's where we'll see his compassion. That's where we'll see his holiness, his perfection, his purity. That's where we'll see God's mercy. All of these things that are testified to him, we see them all. We see them all in Jesus. So they're testified by the prophets and the law, and then they all come into fruition, and we see it in flesh in Jesus Christ. His humor, his, his hospitality, his peacefulness, his power, his righteous anger, all of it. I'll say it again. If you want to know what God is like, all you need to do is look at Jesus. He is the radiance of God's glory, and he is the embodiment of God's nature. That's number five. Number six. Jesus is also God's supreme revelation uh, in the sense that he is the cosmic sustainer. Uh, the cosmic sustainer. So now these last three are going to kind of line up with the first three. Uh, he, he, he's the cosmic sustainer. And so not only did Jesus make everything, right? so he owns everything, he made everything, but you know what? He also sustains everything now, the author tells us. That's the next part of verse 3, just as we just keep reading. Uh, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus holds it all together. That's the claim. Jesus holds it all together. From the biggest galaxy to the tiniest atom, he holds it all together. How does he do it? He does it by the word of his power. Right? So he created, and again, you see how these stack up. Uh, if you think of Genesis 1, how did God create the universe? He spoke. Well, how does God now sustain the universe? He speaks. It's the word of his power. He, he doesn't even have to lift a finger. Right? You think of the ancient Greek myth of Atlas. Atlas who holds the earth up and he strains beneath it. Jesus just speaks and holds it up. He sustains the universe, not just a planet, the whole universe by the word of his power. And so uh, this is no clockmaker creator. For those of you who maybe are familiar with that kind of argument from, theology, uh, from philosophy, you know, uh, deism likes to say, well, there, yes, there's a, a, a supreme, uh, a prime mover who, who wound up the clock and, and made it, but then he walked away and he's not active anymore, right? So you just wind up a clock. We don't do this anymore, do we? You got electronic clocks, but you wind up the old clock and, it, and it'll run on its own if you're not there anymore. That is not the Bible's picture of the creator. The creator doesn't wind it up and walk away. No, he is actively sustaining, this says. That's Jesus. He's the cosmic sustainer. He upholds and sustains everything that exists. This is so encouraging. You say, oh, we're dealing with these are such deep things, aren't they? Well, yeah, I suppose they're deep, but it's, it's very personal. This is very encouraging personally. Why? Because it means that Jesus can help us he can help us with whatever we're facing. The next time you start wondering if you can get through the rest of the day, and I think we all have days like that now and again. Some of us have, have more of them than others. But, but the next time you find yourself wondering, how am I even going to get to bedtime today? Remind yourself that Jesus is the cosmic sustainer. And if he can hold the universe together, he, I think he can hold you together. He can hold you together too. He can get you through to the kid's bedtime. I remember what that was like. Sometimes it's, it's like that. He can get you through bedtime. He can get you through that meeting you've been dreading. 
He can get you through that treatment you don't want to have. He can get you through that sleepless night. He can get you through that controversy at work that's been giving you so much stomach acid. Whatever it is, he can get you through. After all, if he can uphold the universe, he can certainly uphold you and me. So yes, he's the cosmic sustainer. And, he, and that, this isn't just um, theology and philosophy. This is, this is the one who, who keeps us going. This is the one who keeps calling us back and, and, and helping us keep pressing forward. The one who encourages us, the, the, the cosmic sustainer. Number seven, the next one. Jesus is also, as we keep reading, he's the purifying savior. He's the purifying savior. Uh, and that's what we get at the end of verse 3, or near the end of verse 3. And it's actually, it's just a, a supporting phrase, but it's a very important one. He, 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 after making purification for sins, it says. And so Jesus did something. He made purification for sins. Uh, Hebrews is going to talk about this one a lot. We'll spend a, a good bit of time on this one along the way with different sermons. Uh, the basic idea, that, and what he's referring to here already, is that Jesus fulfills the whole Old Covenant system. He fulfills the whole thing. The sacrifices, the priesthood. So if you're doing like a read through the Bible in a year program, pretty quick you're going to get to all that stuff. right? The sacrifices, the priests, the temple, the festivals, the different laws and regulations and all of it. It all culminates in Jesus, this book is going to tell us. He brings all of it to completion. And in so doing, when he did that, he took care of our sin. Right? That's this direct connection, making purification for sins. So he purifies us, and all of those rituals looked ahead to how he, how he would purify us, and in purifying us, he saves us. So he's the purifying Savior. No one else can do that for us. No one else can do it. Sacrificing animals couldn't do it. Right? That's why the Old Covenant ultimately fails. It was an intentional failure on God's part to teach us, we learned from, he, from, uh, from Galatians. But, but ultimately, the Old Covenant can't do it. The blood of animals, even thousands and tens of thousands of animals, could not save human beings from their sins. Good works couldn't do it. You say, all right, we don't need, we'll, just, we'll just be good people. That'll do it. No, that couldn't do it. Giving to charity doesn't do it. Philosophy could never do it. Right? It's hard for Greeks to hear. Uh, philosophy and moderns too. Philosophy can't do it. Achievements couldn't do it. Art. You know, we always talk about art and music lifting the human soul. Art, music, literature, science, technology. None of it. All good stuff, but none of it is able to solve humankind's biggest problem. Our biggest problem is we're separated from God because of our sin. And the only solution this book is going to tell us, and we get it already here in verse 3, the only solution for that problem is Jesus Christ. He's the one who made provision for our sins, purification for our sins. He is our purifying Savior. Finally, finally, the, the eighth way Jesus is the supreme revelation of God is that he is the ultimate ruler. So what is God like? All these things, we can look at all of these, and it culminates with this. Jesus is the ultimate ruler. That's where the opening paragraph lands. Uh, let's pick up in the middle of verse 3. Uh, after making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of, the throne of heaven. He sat down at God's right hand. Uh, this verse echoes 
really the same, the same thing you get from Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, more, more familiar passage for many, verses 9 through 11. This is one of those passages where somebody's going to say, see, Paul wrote it, because it sounds so much like Paul in terms of its themes. Uh, uh, Philippians 2, 9, therefore God has highly exalted him. This is Paul describing the same thing Hebrews is. God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Hebrews 1 is saying the same thing. Jesus is that ultimate ruler, the one before whom every knee will bow. His name is the name. Every, every voice will confess that he is Lord. Uh, he is seated now. Uh, verse, verse 3 tells us at the, at the right hand of God. Uh, the right hand in that world is the position of authority. Right, the one at the right hand is the position. So God is on his throne. Jesus is on the throne right next to his. It's the position of authority. And so the claim there, it's not a, it's not a lower claim. The claim is he's in charge. That's what that means when it says he's the right hand. He's running the whole show. He's in charge. Uh, what's up with the angels? That's next week. We will talk about the angels next week. But just to preview, uh, the, the basic idea, why, he, why, why, why does verse 4 matter? The basic idea is Jesus is greater than even the greatest beings we usually think of. And, and we, you know, we'll explain, we'll dig into this a little bit next week from a Jewish perspective especially. But angels are pretty great, right? They can do things you and I can't do, that's for sure, right? So angels are pretty good, they're, they're pretty strong, they're pretty amazing. Jesus is far greater. Jesus is far greater. That's the point of, of verse 4. So he's great, right? He's the ultimate ruler. That's what that sketches out for us there. I don't know what uh, the numbers are uh, this month, but uh, there was a poll last summer. That's the last time I saw a poll like this. Uh, there was a poll last summer uh, that found that 88% of Americans, 88% of Americans believe the United States is on the wrong track. 88%. Now, of course, everybody's got their own definition of what they mean by that, and you know, they're all talking about different things. It's, it's, uh, it's not, I'm not sure how helpful those surveys are, but still pretty striking, right? Still pretty striking. 88% of your fellow Americans say their own country is on the wrong track. If you're one of those 88%, if you're here this morning and you would have answered that way when asked the question, uh, take heart. Take heart. Yeah, yeah, your country may be drifting. You can figure that one out. I don't know. But, but Jesus is on his throne. He's the ultimate ruler. Jesus is on his throne. And, and long after the current Congress and the current president and the current whatever, long after they're all gone, he will still be on his throne. He will still be there because he is, he's not, he's not, he doesn't serve at the will of the people or the will of a constitution or any such thing. He, he is the ultimate ruler. God himself has put him there. That's pretty supreme. That's pretty supreme. Uh, I read a book uh, a few months ago called uh, Living Forward. It's this book I've, I was actually, I finished it. It's a process I've been working through. Um, it, it's, a, it's one of those leadership books, li Living Forward. I recommend it if you like that kind of stuff. And, and uh, one of the main points of this book was that people in leadership positions need to have a vision, right? You need to have a vision for where you're going if you're going to lead something, you know, whether it's a business or a church or, or just your own personal life. You, you need to have a vision for where you're going. And uh, one of the authors, it's co-written co co by two guys. One of the authors name is, is a guy named Daniel Harkavy. And uh, Harkavy tells a story from his own life to kind of illustrate this point. He, apparently, he's a surfer, kind of an amateur surfer. And, uh, it, it, and so it's, it's just a hobby, but he's done it a long time, so he's pretty good at it. But he decided one day that he wanted to get better. 
wanted to be better surfer. He lives out in California, I think, or something like that. And so uh, he decided he wanted to be a better surfer, so he hired a coach, invested a little bit of money, hired himself a surfing coach to analyze his form. And so what this coach did was he took a bunch of pictures. And so he, he, put, he said, go, go, go surf, do a few runs. And so Harkavy was out there doing surfing, and, and this coach was in a little boat, I guess, uh, filming and taking pictures of Harkavy uh, of surfing. And then they sat down afterwards and they analyzed, right? So this was how they were going to approach it. So they sat down and they analyzed his form. And, and here's how Harkavy describes that process. Here's what, he, here's what he makes of it. He says, in some of the pictures, I was sloppy and powerless. In others, my form was much better. The difference between the two, the good ones and the bad ones, all came down to where I was looking. The difference all came down to where I was looking. Even though I'd been surfing for 30 years, the photos revealed a rookie mistake. When I took my eyes off the target, my form suffered. Because in surfing, where your eyes go, your body follows. Most beginners look at their feet, and they go down. The lesson, he concludes, is simple you get what you focus on. What we see ahead impacts the actions we take right now. Harkavy was talking about leadership, but that principle applies to what we're talking about today. That principle applies to all of life. Where our eyes go, our lives follow. Where our, li- where our eyes go, our lives follow. We get what we focus on, and that's why we need to focus on Jesus. That's the point of this book. Jesus and Jesus alone is the supreme revelation of God. And if we're going to endure, if we're going to do more than endure, if we're going to overcome, if we're going to live the way our God wants us to live, that starts with focusing our eyes on the Savior, focusing our eyes on Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, thank you so much for this book and its beautiful beginning. Uh, These uh, words are challenging us and lifting up our hearts already, and we thank you for that. I want to pray for myself and everyone who's listening to these words right now, that you would help us, Lord, to to do exactly what we're being called to do, to focus on Jesus, to look at the one who is high and lifted up, the one who is on the throne of heaven, the one who has made purification for our sins, the one who's done all of these things we've talked about today, the creator, the sustainer, uh, the heir of all things, the one who who has rightful claim both by the giving and by right to the very breath coming out of my mouth right now as I offer this prayer. Uh, all is you, all is, is you and, and uh, unto you, all is, is, is from you and for you, and, and uh, help us, Lord, to grow in our understanding and our appreciation of that. Uh, glorify Jesus in our lives, that's what we pray. And it's in his name we do pray. Amen.